0: Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Our conversation today is with Scale AI's Public Sector General Manager, John Brennan. We recorded this conversation at the Reagan National Defense Forum earlier this month in Simi Valley, California. The basic theme of our conversation is something John's written a lot about, this idea that for as long as most of us can remember before 2023 really became the year that everyone talked about AI, we saw AI, the challenges and opportunities attached to the concept as just being this hypothetical that we'd confront in a quasi-sci-fi future. However, it's been made pretty clear this year, all of these challenges and opportunities are very much in the here and now. So our conversation focuses on how scale, John, and how all of us could think about this present moment instead of seeing this as something that's going to happen in the near future. Hope you all enjoy the conversation. And of course, a huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast and to all of you listeners as we near the end of a very great year for the show. John Brennan, welcome to The Realignment.
1: Thank you so much, Marshall. Glad to be here.
0: I don't normally like beginning with biographies, but you are, in this case, the other John Brennan when it comes to national security circles. So I think this would be a helpful way for you just to kick things off. Um, you're at scale, obviously. You're leading public sector, but you've got a really interesting background that might put you in this position.
1: Yeah, and I met Director Brennan before. Uh, he's a, an amazing leader as well. Uh, My family started as FBI agents, so the choice for me was do I become a fifth-generation FBI agent or do something else, and I was really moved to service and join the Army by going to West Point. It was something I actually decided to do in the seventh grade, so all of my high school years were geared towards accomplishing that goal. And then I was able to go serve as an infantry officer in South Korea and then was ultimately assigned to the Old Guard at Arlington National Cemetery, which is how I got to D.C., and Decided to stay there and raise a family beginning in 2000. After September 11th, many of us decided to go back into uh, things very close to defense or national security. So I joined Booz Allen Hamilton and that started my journey uh, supporting the intelligence community and later becoming a member of it at the CIA, doing a tour at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and then ultimately seeing that we really needed to get a different compute paradigm for the IC, and that's why I joined Amazon Web Services and was part of a small team that really paved the way for cloud computing to be available on the top secret network and the secret network for the Department of Defense. Um, And now, for me, what I'm really excited about at scale is we're able to do things that 10 years ago we were only imagining. They were concepts, we would write about them, but when I saw scale um, being Times 2022 invention of the year by doing computer vision at the scale of municipal areas in Ukraine, identifying all the buildings that had been, you know, completely damaged or partially damaged as a way to guide, recovery and medical personnel, that for me had been science fiction when I was at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, that you could do computer vision to that level. And I just had to go find out what was going on at scale. And I'm, I'm really proud to be part of that team of inventors. Uh, we're a non-traditional defense contractor, but fundamentally we're a dual use company because we spend so much time supporting the uh, computer vision for autonomy space in san francisco and other parts of the united states with the self-driving car industry and so that's what we're we're bringing to this this new conversation around how we advance our government
0: you know uh given the history you just told, it was a very affirmative choice not to join the FBI on your part. You seem to have hit every other possible area that you could have hit, um, if not for that. So let's kind of start here. I'd love for you to expand on what computer vision means for folks. Obviously, like there's a broader tie into other assets as well, too. There. So let's talk more about that Time Magazine Award.
1: Sure. So there's a variety of research that's been going on for decades to really mimic the senses of humans, whether it's our ability to speak, see, hear, taste, smell, etc., cetera. And uh, within the space of computer vision, there's multiple techniques that have really uh, taken off within the last decade. And it's machine learning of teaching a computer through multiple modalities, how to store and track and remember objects in space and time. And by multiple modalities, what I mean is... Um, the visible waves like full motion video or a picture as you know we would think of it on youtube but also through lidar or radar or sonar or other sort of invisible uh, parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that help you know you know how far two items are from one another so with that we were able to uh, really support all the perception engineers in most of the major Uh, original equipment manufacturers in the US who have been building self-driving cars. They need uh, very exquisite training data that's highly diverse, and by that I mean they need all the sort of street scenarios that we face as drivers in all the lighting conditions and all the types of weather that that we have to drive through today. So creating that kind of training data set requires a significant amount of human-in-the-loop work to really teach, um, you know, what is a stop sign and what's its relationship to the line on the ground? And what do you do in the delivery truck in front of you is not moving. Um, it's just there's so much that we have to teach these machines. And, and we've been able to because of the, the way we um, basically provide instructions to humans to do these tasks and the kind of quality assurance that we bring to it and then ultimately the test and evaluation that goes into it. Because uh, with driving, it is a life and limb activity, and it's a regulated industry uh, for the equipment itself. So it's very important to be able to have those sorts of proof points so people can safely adopt technologies like that.
0: You know, your description of all this is dual use is perfectly encapsulated by your referencing self-driving cars. I just love to um, get kind of scale perspective on that, because I don't think, you know, um, when your CEO, Alex, was starting the company, I don't think the idea in, you know, 17 was, this is going to be a defense contractor. I think it says something about the space that we're in and the nature of the world today, but this is the dynamic, even this conversation we're having.
1: Exactly. And Alex also came from a family of services. Parents have been part of the nuclear lab infrastructure in the United States since immigrating here. He's been you know, born and raised in this kind of technology and, and the idea of service to the nation. So and
0: the dual use technology yeah. we're talking about nuclear.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. For our power and in multiple ways. Um, and as he left MIT and came to Y Combinator, you know, he, he really had this thesis that for machine learning to be relevant we needed much more data that was outside the lab. We didn't need fake data or synthetic data, we really needed the data from... Sorry, what,
0: you, what, what is fake data and synthetic data?
1: Um, I, I really just mean synthetic data. Like okay. We don't need to make up uh, synthetic environments, we have the actual streets, we have the actual observations from cars moving through them. And so doing labeling and annotation of the real operational environment data is fundamentally what you need. Now, in the academic setting, you have small samples from labs or studies, and that's good for teaching the fundamentals of how you make a machine learning algorithm. But to really get to the safe deployment of AI, you need to have a constant feedback loop from that environment that it's operating within. And so as he set up scale, You know, like any sort of startup at Y Combinator, you're searching for product market fit and eventually uh, took hold with the perception industry of the self-driving car movement. And that's carried us through to uh, hundreds of millions and billions of annotations that support that industry.
0: And, you know, speaking of scale and your entry into it, we're obviously recording this at the Reagan National Defense Forum. I've made this joke. I will continue to make this joke. We have a beautiful view of California and we are in this little booth here. But I assure the audience that there's a beautiful picturesque view behind us. Um, what is what is scale doing here? Um, beyond just like the obvious, like this is the 10th year uh, of the event. Um, the theme is deterrence. Like where does scale fit into the story that I think everyone, um, military, civilian or otherwise is trying to tell today? So, a little
1: more than three years ago, the Department of Defense had a program that was responsible for deploying computer vision to support intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. A very groundbreaking program that was helping solve the casualty rate in Iraq and Afghanistan from uh, improvised explosive devices. And as part of that, they recognized that the models had gotten to a point where they were plateauing in performance. And when they did the root cause analysis, they determined that it was really the initial training data was not diverse enough, not representative of the environments that they were trying to take the models to next. And so, Because, thankfully, the Department of Defense has this notion of a non-traditional partner, they were able to reach out to scale as a company and teach them about what it would mean to support the Department of Defense in this particular role and begin the conversation of how to adapt the technology we'd been using with LiDAR and full motion video to apply it to the sensors that the U.S. government has at its disposal. And so once we uh, became a federal contractor and joined uh, this movement of supporting our national defense, it was very important for us to begin to uh, support the associations and foundations that are so part of the strategic dialogue we're engaged in about the future. And so this is our third year attending the Reagan Defense Forum. My first year attending personally, so I'm, I'm honored to be here and, and see what the discussion is about. And. When you think back and reflect upon President Reagan's administration and his vision, he was always trying to uh, bring more allies together, making the United States relevant to our allies. But he was also very firm with our adversaries. And we we talk uh, a number of times in the conference and previously about the notion of peace through strength or peace through deterrence. And we believe that artificial intelligence is going to be part of that, the notion of AI overmatch the superpowers that we're going to be able to provide to all the members of our military and national security enterprise. And so it's important for us as an actual AI company who was you know, born uh, and, and really designed to do computer vision and large language model work to be here to lend our voice to the discussion. You
0: know, Something I'm really curious about, so scale comes out of Y Combinator. For those who aren't aware, Y Combinator is one of the premier um you know, accelerators um, of, of tech companies. This is where Airbnb comes from. All of these, like Stripe came out of Y Comedy, all of these like 2000s and 2010 success stories. Um, once again, I don't think. You know, when Alex is submitting the Bicometer application, he's talking to, I think, Sam Altman was probably in charge at the time. Yes. He's not telling Sam, hey, you know, I think someday we're going to be a defense contractor. Um, he's talking in other different ways. Um, so the DC part of the conversation was probably not centered. Um, given your background, though, I, the typical way we could have this conversation is say like, oh, of course, Silicon Valley moves fast. It, you know, does things that doesn't scale. There's so much DC can learn. What can Silicon Valley Learn from DC and the background that you've had in the community and also in the US military itself?
1: I think it's fair to say that the country went through a period in Vietnam and again later with Iraq and Afghanistan where, Um, you know, sadly we lost our national cohesion around supporting the mission due to you know, proper differences of opinion upon what we're doing next. My brother served in Iraq. I went to Afghanistan with the government. I can appreciate all sides of the argument. So as a result of that, though, there were a lot of companies in the tech innovation space that shied away from supporting the federal government and our national security mission. Uh, It's clear that after Russia invading Ukraine, there's a renewed spirit to support the defense of democracy and and all of our values. So what I think um, Silicon Valley and other tech hubs like Austin or Denver or Boston can learn from Washington DC is we're supporting the rule of law. We all believe deeply in the separation of powers in the government. We recognize the roles and responsibilities the executive and legislative branch have. And we also all appreciate that they can't really accomplish their mission without a good relationship between industry and government. And they have tremendous programs uh, on the policy front, on the skill development front, and on the acquisition front to try to maintain this healthy relationship so that we can, as a country, leverage the dynamism and the innovation that we have from Our educational institutions, the venture-backed startups that we have, and all the other ways we can scale technology and people and organizations in our capital markets. So I'd say the the main thing is, like everything else in life, give them a chance. You know, visit DC, come listen to what their problems and needs are. You don't really understand it until you go to the National Training Center at the Army or you go visit uh, a base in Korea to understand what our service members, you know, have to do to accomplish their mission. So, like all the other uh, customer research startups do, go meet your potential customers.
0: Yeah, and you know, I was excited to see that you obviously do serious writing. You you had a great piece at the Modern War Institute, which is actually hosted at West Point. So, you know, nice circular career stuff there. Um, we'll link this in the show notes, but I'd love for you to just kind of, um, without giving away the entire like piece, obviously, um, tell us about your writing. Um, and we'll link to that, of course.
1: Absolutely. So. For me, autonomy was new. I had spent decades supporting computer vision for intelligence surveillance reconnaissance and had spent a lot of time after the Arab Spring thinking about a new way of doing intelligence warning called anticipatory intelligence. And so when I got to scale and and got an opportunity to start learning about autonomy, I felt like I really needed... To dig deeper and figure out where and how it was going to apply to the defense mission, so I reached out to my co-author Adarsh, who spent time at uh, Ghost Robotics and uh, had his academic training in uh, developing autonomous systems, and we just spent an afternoon going through uh, all the steps involved in training a computer vision model. You know how it could deploy to a system and then what sort of maintenance would be required over time. And for defense applications, they have to operate in so many different environments, and one of them is a contested communications environment. We wanted to try to um, inform the future investments that government's considering right now in their networks. Most of our networks are geared towards humans communicating with one another, and we believe that there's going to be more autonomous systems performing critical functions like um, medical care or resupply, and they're going to be consumers of the compute and bandwidth on the battlefield also. And so we use a vignette in the we, future. Let's pause there. Yeah. I mean, this is great,
0: but... And this is... Having read, read the piece, uh, compute bandwidth. I obviously know what these things are, but they're just, they're, I feel like they're new concepts for the battlefield. Like this is if, you're, if it's 2006, um, Iraq, you're not thinking in those terms. We very much are thinking in those terms today. So can you make that part very literal? Then we'll continue on yeah, with happy the implementation. To. I think we're a
1: military in transition. We've gone from the analog era to the digital era, and next is the generative era. So by that, I mean, you know, computers, desktop computers didn't arrive in the Department of Defense until the late 1980s. And so that's when we start to have this explosion of digital documents and chat and things like that. Before, everything was paper from a typewriter or a phone call or radio. So the amount of compute that you need to go into Afghanistan or Iraq or some other conflict in this era was already increasing as a result of the digitization of our communications and planning and logistics. Um, And unfortunately, most of those systems that we were building, they were designed from a requirement standpoint in the 90s. And so they had kind of a narrow view of what would be possible with with compute, storage, and networking in the field in the future, they're also vertically integrated systems that don't talk to one another. That was a great design pattern then, but we know today that speed of communications, accuracy of data matters, and the best way to do that is to have the humans assisted by basic compute, storage, and, and networking. You
0: know, you keep and before we get back to the story. Um, you make frequent references to human-assisted, human integration. As you know, in any AI conversation, there's this specter of replacement, irrelevancy, what has Scales experience taught you about how in many ways AI could leverage talent that already exists while also creating new opportunities for folks that don't already operate in the space?
1: I get this question all the time and the that's unfortunate the a podcast, downside, you
0: never want to hear that as a podcaster the downside <laughs> version is usually
1: you know how do we make sure the machines don't take over and and we start talking about this point that you've rightly pointed out which is humans are in the loop how do we keep them in the loop it's a it's a team it's a human machine integration problem um, the answer on the downside is we can always unplug the servers so I feel safe about uh, where we are versus AI taking over but AI is not going to be relevant if we don't go back to an end user who's trying to solve a problem, whether that's you or my colleagues or those in the Department of Defense. We all are solving problems today, but there's so many more we can and should be solving. If only we had some assistance in the form of the first draft or somebody to help us come up with an alternative. You know, so many of our plans today are typically like, this is the way we're going to do it. We don't have the time or luxury to go explore the second, third, fourth, let alone fifth alternative. Uh, Machine learning and artificial intelligence are going to make those tasks, those mental tasks, virtually free. Uh, And so you get a chance to overcome something that we all have, which are cognitive biases. And um, the next step after that is really... You know, you have to be able to imagine, how can I do this task so fundamentally differently? How can we 10x this process? How can we 100x this process? So many of us live in a world where we have to manage to constraints. And so being able to unpack that and do more experimentation to see how this new future is actually feasible and relevant to your problem uh, is the opportunity before us all. And that means we're going to need people who do process redefinition and product managers and people who do training and documentation. It's not only the machine learning engineers, it's all of us working on improving something day to day.
0: That's the perfect pick pivot back to the actual story. So it, you know, it takes place, um, near present, I'd say is the right way of describing it. Like take us into it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, You know, forbid the day we're in a major nation-state war again. That's nothing any of us want, which is why we need uh, deterrence, you know, to be part of the equation. But um, in this particular allegory, which I I take from some of my military uh, history readings uh, of the past— I'm patterning it after a similar story at the National Training Center that the Army has, and there were others earlier where you you try to paint the picture of a leader in the moment and what do they have to do next. So in this case, it's a motorized or armored um, division of the future that is AI enabled, it's autonomy enabled, and it's starting to make its first movement into a location. And we tell the story of how. The team that's responsible for defending the commander is assisted by some amount of autonomous systems that are scouts or performing reconnaissance. And we use the initial uh, education and training and updating of the system in that opening moments of the of the conflict as the way to, to tell that kind of full story on compute and network and human integration.
0: I love your earlier statement about AI ultimately, and autonomous systems ultimately serving to solve problems for an end user. And if we're imagining this scenario you scope out in your writing, it seems that the problem is the fog of war, a lack of perception, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To what degree is the technology that you and scale and the broader team working on capable of solving "quote unquote" this very Clausewitzian problem in the first place,
1: we're certainly going to try to pierce the fog of war. I don't know that the sun will come out and completely take it away if we uh, torture that uh, analogy further. But um, you know, really, uh, warfare and staff supporting commanders is a, a high cognitive function problem, and. In the analog staff era and digital staff era, we were able to add more people to the staff. And you can actually trace this in the rise and fall of the people assigned to the joint staff. Um, But in the same period of time, the total information in the world has increased two orders of magnitude. So we're not keeping up with strictly adding more people, adding more eyeballs, you know, adding more hands at the keyboard with that kind of a problem. And so we're excited about the potential of having a large language model actually do more reading, more synthesis, more initial drafting for the staff elements supporting a commander. Um, We're wading into the deep end of the pool. There's lots of pedestrian problems to work on, you know, like drafting somebody's annual review or, you know, letter of recommendation or some of the opening speeches we've heard at the conference today. Um, but it's a it's the kind of problem that we think a, a large language model will be well suited to, and our experience there goes back to 2019. Um, at that point, OpenAI was working on GPT-2, and they realized that they needed an exquisite training data set and turned to scale for our ability to integrate humans into the training data process of. Uh, machine learning, in this case, a large language model. And we've been part of the LLM journey for not only OpenAI, but other companies since then. Um, And so the idea would would generally be you have all of this information coming in from various people and systems on a battlefield. Uh, There's going to certainly be some amount of misinformation or inaccuracy in it, because that always happens at 2 a.m. in the rain when you're trying to explain what you see in front of you on a battlefield. And so the ability of a large language model to point out inconsistencies, you know, provide more footnotes um, so that the human trying to make the decision on what to recommend next has the benefit of that information. We sadly can't listen to every podcast in the world. We can't read every book. But the large language models will be able to. And that should be part of um, the modern government, which is why I'm at public sector scale to make that happen.
0: Yeah, and you know, to the you know the final torture of the you know fog of war reference, with ISR we can see that Vladimir Putin is assembling Russian forces on the Ukrainian border in November, December 2021. Um, should there be a presage to a Taiwan conflict, almost certainly the sheer assemblage of material men, et cetera, would be visible with ISR, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, but. Intent is not going to be clear. But we're always going to be, that's why you're using the word piercing is just so helpful. Where, you know, we previously seen uh, Vladimir Putin assemble troops on the border, but there wasn't an invasion. Hamas did this also with Israel prior to October 7th. There's always going to be space where, once again, you need to have humans on the other end or at the end point of this product interpreting, doing those other assorted moves. So here's a question I've been asking everyone, and I'm especially fascinated to know your answer. We. This isn't like a high-level conversation, but we're, once we're, again, we're, we're focused very much on the near-present to near-future. Um, ideal states, we're working, we're building. Um, I've just done a bunch of conversations at RNDF where folks have just talked about the fact that we just can't produce munitions at a rate that we could have produced in the 1980s. So, pre-digital, very much the analog world. And in many ways, the actual workers at the factories are very analog workers themselves um, from an age and retirement perspective. So, how do you just personally... Um, you know, as a former warfighter, as a member of the IC, but now a public sector um, at Skillperson, person, how do you just think about how we have to do all of this? Because that seems to be the challenge right now. All of this has to be done at once.
1: I have a little bit of personal experience in some hardware development. So recently, I took time away from national security and tried to work on energy transition and was part of a team trying to build a hydrogen fuel cell. And we were blessed with many technicians and dozens of chemical engineers. But what we really needed was a welder for the next step. And um, I think in the United States and in democracies, we have to have uh, access to the best labor. And that's not only from the PhDs, but also into the trades. Mm -hmm. And we need employees who are gonna play all the roles that it takes to build, equip, and maintain uh, the force going forward. So I'm thankful that we have some of the uh, best available educational institutions in the country between community colleges and technical programs and high schools, but also university PhD programs and people who travel abroad. Um, But fundamentally, I think our, our leaders in businesses really need to think through how they have those sustained pipelines of staff. I know that between you know, the economic cycles we face and things like the pandemic, where people you know, went back home or relocated, uh, we've lost a little bit of the connective tissue we had on university recruiting or just you know, face-to-face recruiting generally. And I think that that's something we all have to get back to quickly. Uh, as we think through the workforce that we need next for for all these
0: programs, yeah, and i I really appreciate that answer as a as a host because I really believe in scale, I like everyone I've encountered there but I, I very much don't want this episode to be a commercial um, and what your answer is illustrating is given these mission oriented topics, we are actually going to have to quite literally work together. Your answer brought to mind everyone from a Counselor at a high school, running the apprenticeship program, all the way to a company like Scale, but also to DoD, and also to the like higher education space. So, if we do not find ways for all the different parts of our ecosystem to understand and work together, we quite quite literally can't do these things. So, I think it's just like such an interesting dynamic to have.
1: Agreed. In fact, if a uh, graduate of my high school at West Point had not come back one day in uniform to talk to us as students in the library, I never would have known about West Point and I never would have applied. So I think we all have to go back and find ways to mentor those that are working their way through middle school and high school to just expose them to the great opportunities that we have to offer so they can chart their own path.
0: So the closing question to kind of take us out, and this is by talking about your your piece on autonomous um, ISR, Where does scale fit into the AI ecosystem that's demonstrated by that story? Because I think it's very easy to say, hey, we're talking about AI, and we just treat AI as this broad umbrella category. But obviously, I don't think that those autonomous like dog-like robots, I don't think those are scale products. Um, they, they are a different product that operates within an ecosystem. So can you kind of just use this example as a way of demonstrating that there's this broader AI ecosystem that we should understand if we're trying to approach and learn about this space?
1: Happy to. So in the end, you need a well-performing, tested, and evaluated model, whether it's computer vision or large language model. Specifically in the computer vision space, we can help with either the... Assisted or automated target recognition, so identify friend or foe, classify what it is. uh, Or how do you perceive a scene so that as a system you can move forward? The way we do that uh, is many fold. We can offer the whole end-to-end software system for building it. We can actually build the models. But our real bread and butter, what we're known for best, is creating these exquisite training data sets to make the machines smarter and make the models perform. And so... We're happy to see that the Department of Defense and other organizations are investing in the hardware, and they recognize that they also need software. But what they're really going to find out soon is that they needed that training data, and that's where we hope to assist them.
0: That is an excellent place to end. Um, John, any places, any writing of yours beyond what I've mentioned that folks should check out? Because well, once again, you're a good writer, but you have interesting things to say.
1: I wish someone read read my dissertation. It was on... Uh, Uh, sort of transforming the oversight of intelligence. I spent many more hours on that than I do most articles. Uh, And I don't know. When did did you write that? uh, I did it while I was in the CIA and at uh, AWS. So I I went back and analyzed, did the creation of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence make a difference on intelligence outcomes?
0: It's actually, wow, it's actually, uh, this is, I, I actually feel... You're a pain, because that—not pain, you seem to be okay with yourself. <laughs> but that's actually an incredibly relevant and, like, really fascinating topic, actually, because to your point about, um, however, these periods, Vietnam, Iraq, etc., where there's going to be skepticism of, like, the mission and probably the USG in general, that's also where you see, you know, committees, like in the 70s with the intelligence communities. That's really— Someone, there's there is at least one person who will find that fascinating in our audience. I hope so, they do. John, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for joining us uh, at the RNDF.
1: Really a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for everything that you do. Thanks. Cheers.
0: Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month $50 a year or 500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.